feel like we could be discussing, you know, goosebumps and I'd be having a good time. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Don't bring goosebumps into this. <laughs> How dare you? Damn. It looks like Iron Rand or something like that. You're listening to a podcast created by the Jack's Way Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. So we're here today. We are actually going to read Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And uh, again, we are very, very delighted to have Brendan join us again. This is his uh, second episode with the Jacksway Collective and our first returning guest. Um, so welcome, Brendan. Hello. I'm back. You're back. And you sound still as if you were on uh, The Blue Apple Yeti has not so. arrived. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting for that donation. Someone wants to come through <laughs> with that donation. It's on the horizon. Okay, so so to get into the story here, uh, as always, when you bring the story, it's on you to summarize and tell us a little bit about why you chose the story in the first place. I've been kind of in this sci-fi phase lately. I've been reading this other guy called Robert Sheckley and some Ray Bradbury. And uh, mm. so this story, I guess I'll do my summary. I think this might be the shortest summary ever that we've ever done. <laughs> so here it is. It's a dystopian tale about a group of five characters stuck in a computer hell. Damn, how succinct and how <laughs> accurate. <laughs> you don't sound impressed. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's fucking great. What else happens in the story other than that exact sentence? Lots of sadness, lots of um, jelly. Yeah, okay, I think that the story was uh, exactly that. Um, five characters trapped in some sort of simulation, almost like... Uh, Black Mirror. Black Mirror, or like um, young adults, like novel turned like high-budget movie style. I don't know, like, <laughs> I've got a Spy kids vibe. Um, <laughs> the Maze Runner. The Maze Runner, there you go, right? One of these kind of stories. Um, but with an interesting twist of 19 was this 1980s 1966 19th, holy shit okay so it's 1960s yeah i don't know how do we feel about the story um, i feel like i might be really harsh on this for our notes but i i didn't like the story at all to be honest but i'm excited to talk about it and uh see if either of you guys want to defend it as i um just shit on it the entire time well i'll have, I'll have to I'll listen to your um criticisms before launching a defense Okay, well, well, how about we just get right into it? I, I didn't like the writing style at all. Um, it's going for that, it seems like, short sentence, like, poppy, hard-hitting, like, sci-fi vibe, which I guess is fine. Both of these stories, the one that we read last time with Brendan in The Penal Colony and this one, both have, like, some sort of element of technology mixed with humans and humans interacting with said piece of technology. And I think I just, I much like the way that Kafka approaches relationship with a very um, kind of detached tone in his writing. Um, for me, that actually was able to contribute to the kind of eerie feeling of the story. Whereas with this, some of the descriptions were like gross and like weird. And when he talks about like phlegm in his mouth and thick ropey worms and just that, that for me just kind of grossed me out and it actually added to a kind of like comic booky 
feel, right? Um, and maybe that's what he was going for, but for me, it just it wasn't working. Yeah, I think that's what he was going for, right? Because that's the literary movement he was working in. I'm just on the wiki page, and it says the new wave movement was his thing. Okay, um, what does Wikipedia say? So, movement in science fiction produced in the 60s, 70s, characterized by a high degree of experimentation, both in form and in content. Hmm. Very experimental. Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay, hell, let me throw one other thing at, with the writing at you. The pacing to me was extremely weird, which mm-hmm. I guess also you could also defend as part of the writer's intention, right? Because uh, Ted's sense of time is completely out of whack mm-hmm. the entire fucking story. But so is the reader's sense of time in terms of following the plot. It seems like days will pass in the midst of like a single paragraph and then you'll read a page and like you don't know whether five days have passed or like months or a year. Um, so that to me was very kind of disorienting as well, um, which mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't really like. It was also written in a, apparently it was written in a night. So that could be why. Probably why it's not fair to compare it to Kafka. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But I guess so much of the the wave at this time was like punching out pulp, pulpy, like yeah. um, find at the grocery store stand, like sci-fi novels, right? This is what sci-fi yeah, there's no point was in, birthed out of. No point in spending so much time on a story. You're probably getting paid like X amount of money to write. Yeah. What are they? Like probably five cents a word or something like that. <laughs> and they're just punching these things out like like hotcakes. So <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess maybe it's, it's not fair for me to expect so much more in terms of, you know, beautiful literary language out of a sci-fi story like yeah. this. Plus we went from, um, we went from Tolstoy to this. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> you're right. I don't know how to say it in a kind way, but not yeah, your style, I, I just not your style, not my style. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I, I understand it in a historical context. The thing that I found uh, kind of interesting about the style was the way that like every single sentence felt like its own little capsule that you're taking in, like um, as opposed to something where there's a flow through the paragraph. Everything was so disorienting uh, that you just kind of like you latched on to each individual sentence as it was occurring, which made for some like really strong storytelling because there were points where it was so grotesque and so unnerving. And it really captured the feeling of actually being inside the experience itself. But there were other parts where it was just like so stream of consciousness that it was unpleasant to read. Like the way that he would state things so matter of factly with the amount of tact of like a racist grandmother. The way he was talking about Ellen (laughs) as like this this, this slut. That was probably coming from him. I don't know. Ted was such a weird. Maybe Ted is like also like the writer. He's also just has no filter. He just kind of states, and you're right, in a very matter of fact sense, and um, that can be very jarring to read. It can lead to some very interesting passages. Um, but yeah, maybe it, maybe it can come on too strong in points too. Like, <laughs> or what did you guys think about these people? These five people's environment? Because I think that it, to just add to that disorienting nature of the story, I never really got a sense of landscape. Yeah, it was hard to it was hard to story. picture for me. And I think maybe that's because it's like ever changing and you're passing through so much time, but at one point you're in an ice cave and then you're like in some sort of like choir of like dead people or something yeah. like that and um just so much hopping around. I never really did get a sense of full-on landscape. Did you think that this is some sort of 
just like a computer simulation VR style kind of thing, or did you interpret something different? I think it's uh, that computer simulation style, and that's why it's always changing and shifting so quickly. Right. Although there's no real sense of landscape, I get the sense that this is one larger world, though. Remember that point in the story when Benny, he's climbing up and he almost escapes? Yeah, yeah. I guess, again, there's another area where I just don't understand, like, escaping what, how? Yeah, uh, I feel the same way. Yeah, it, it definitely it definitely feels like there are certain events that occur throughout the story that have the implication that it's not a physical world. And that's something that was pretty unclear on by the end of the story was whether it was a simulation or a physical world. Because, I mean, we're dealing with an extremely unreliable narrative uh, narrator in uh, in Ted. He's the one that's currently going through it in a narrative where he's openly admitted that so many people have had their mental states altered. So we don't exactly have a reliable description of what's going on, but like the occurrences of what are happening definitely seem to have the implication of complete control over some sort of simulated world. Yeah, and I, I think that there's some sort of, I don't know, in, some sort of like internal coherence in the world, right? It seems as if they're making a some sort of a journey to get somewhere, right? And through that journey, they're passing through lots of different environments. Uh, to go back to the reliable narrator, I picked that up. Obviously, I'm pretty sure we all did at the exact same spot on page six, um, where he's like, I was the only one still sane and whole, really. AM had not tampered with my mind, not at all. And I'm immediately like, I'm like, how the fuck would you even know if he had or not, right? If he is so all-powerful, he could change you into whatever sort of creature that you wanted to be and also implant things inside of you. And later to, on... Uh, make you know, like you'd have no idea otherwise. Later on in the story, AM enters his mind too. So right off, right from there, we know that. Yeah, exactly. He, he contradicts him. himself, right? He talks about the AI or AM entering his mind like a page later. So yeah, I don't think we can take his word for that. It's interesting how you have the reference to um, Descartes in the story. Then people who are like, like Ted, who is so sure that his mind has not been tampered with at all. Because I think, I don't want to butcher this, but the way that Rene Descartes comes to his, I think, therefore am, is through his like philosophy of doubt and like what what can you examine in the world and in your conscious experience that you absolutely cannot doubt. And I think that he comes to this by imagining some sort of like a thought experiment where like an evil demon is able to like come inside of your mind and you as the thinker have no idea whether or not the demon is making you see things or making you hallucinate or giving you, you know, false senses of security or truth. And so all of that, you don't know whether or not there's a quote unquote evil demon inside of your mind. But one thing that you do know is that you are having, like there's some sort of subject there to experience whatever it is you're experiencing, whether that is true or not. Right. And so I think that's, interesting that he references Descartes and it seems as if AM is doing the same kind of thing to Ted where he's acting as the demon. Yeah, pretty much. Right. And, um, although Ted is a little bit more naive about it, he's like so sure that nothing has been altered in his mind. We, as the reader realize that actually you have, you have no fucking idea whether or not this AM has altered your mind because he could alter it. And he could then, he could also alter your mind to be like, Make, give you the realization that nothing has been altered, if that makes sense. 
I would love to see like Descartes read this short story and just be sitting there like, you fool. (laughs) (laughs) I wish that I could find some sort of just quick sum up of the evil demon thought experiment, but I'm just going to look it up. And also when it comes to the unreliability of Ted, you can kind of see that through the way he talks about Ellen. So, well, first off, you don't know if Ellen is, is doing what she's doing, like if she's volunteering to please the group or if she's being forced. Yeah, uh, same situation applies there too, right? And like, is she volunteering as a matter of her own will or is she volunteering as a matter of AM's will? Um, or again, is she resisting for those same two options, right? Everything in terms of people's motivations in the story are up in the air because there is always a potential manipulator to those uh, motivations, and that is AM uh, itself. The thing that kind of jumped out at me throughout uh, throughout the story was the way that AM seemed to play with them based off of like their very human qualities. Like he plays with uh, their hunger uh, by like supplying them with food, but it tastes awful. Like he has the ability to keep them alive. He's essentially granted them not an immortality, but like an invulnerability. So like you'd, you have this notion that he would be able to make them survive uh, despite being hungry, despite the possibility of dying of hunger, uh, yet he still makes them work for it in that very like savage, rudimentary, basic instinct. And I think sex is used in a very similar way, where like he plays up the promiscuity of the characters in a way of like, just playing with them and making them revert back to this like very primal state. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point. And one, like your, your notes and what you say here about so much of the punishment imposed on these five people are in relation to some of these most basic human instincts that we have. Right. You said sex and food and things like that. And so many of these things are actually things that AM is removed from. Right. And so I think that so much of his punishment towards these five people is out of maybe a form of jealousy or something where maybe he thinks he has achieved some sort of consciousness. But there is still a huge divide in terms of the human element between these individuals and AM itself, because it doesn't have hunger. It doesn't have a sex drive. I don't think. Right. I hope not. Um, (laughs) And things like that. It it did say that AM was like masturbating at one point <laughs> yeah you're right maybe the chinese am is like some sweet sweet asian bay or something like that <laughs> <Wait for laughs> there's some sort of there's some sort of massage parlor <laughs> exactly um but what was i saying oh yeah so i think it maybe maybe so much of this um punishment is a form of like jealousy from am because mm-hmm. he doesn't he is not in a position to experience um some of these things where even am who has achieved consciousness and is um still almighty the human beings still have something that he does not have access to and he is trying to use that against them most definitely that was the feeling that i was getting like because it's the fulfillment of those basic needs and the survival of of of, of like a species that gives people a certain sense of meaning I feel like throughout the story, AM does not have a sense of meaning. Uh, its meaning is derived from what he was programmed it for, but there's no like independent need or meaning within AM outside of what it was told to do. So in a way, it turns a lot of the liberation that comes from having uh, these basic needs 
turns it into a torture, it turns sex into torture, it turns food into torture, uh, all the things that, um, that give humankind some sort of drive, and aspiration to be something and survive. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm now thinking of like uh, grade 10 sociology class and thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And uh, at the, the foundation of that is like, um, in order to achieve a sense of personal meaning in your life and self-actualization, the base of that pyramid needs to be addressed first. And that is like food, water, sex, rest, it's uh, sh shelter, all of those things. It's, you must have these first before you can engage in the pursuit of higher forms of meaning and self-reflection. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, again, MMA uh, does not have access to that at all. So he can't even engage in this pursuit Whereas the humans, even though they're going through a huge amount of suffering and torture, still have access to these fundamental things that make them able to pursue some sort of justification or reason for their own being. So no wonder M.A. is so angry at them yeah. because he, he can't do that and he has no access to that. I can't believe these fucking people lived for 107 years and not once tried to kill each other. No, oh, they did. They did. Or yeah. no, they didn't try to kill each other, but it says they tried suicide. I think yeah. they thought about it. Yeah. So actually, I have a question for you guys. Like, what the hell is going on at the, like, it seems like they tried to commit suicide and then it didn't work. And so they're able to escape by one person killing a different person. But then when it's only Ted left, there's a passage in there saying, like, he's turned into a blob because... He doesn't want AM doesn't want Ted to like slice his own throat mm -hmm. on um, some sort of like sharp edge or something like that. So <laughs> could they have committed suicide the whole time? Have I they think, always been I free think... to kill themselves or kill each other? Didn't it say they tried somewhere or they thought about it? It it was Ted who said so, but Ted also said that he wasn't the one to try it, and the way he phrased it made it seem like it was more of an assumption where he was like, "Yeah, I'm sure the other mm. people have tried it." I was confused because, like, are they not able to kill themselves because of some sort of laws of the simulation that they're in? Or did they just try and kill themselves and back out I like think, you would in the real world? I think AM, AM is able to stop, stop them before they do anything like that. Like how he stopped um, Benny before he tried to escape. And so why is he not able to stop Ted before he kills? Yeah, good, good, good question. I'm just like, is there some sort of key distinction here between killing someone okay am and suicide not okay suicide and escape like i think they just, think they just were able to or do his it reflex is just slow <laughs> they were able to do it before he stopped them i think mm -hmm. hmm. i guess yeah i don't know that just kind of speaks to my confusion about the level of power that am has like he somehow like the reason that four of his friends are able to escape is because like honestly the reaction time of am was not as fast as one <laughs> like he sees them trying to hang themselves. Like how have they lived 107 years and not thought to like kill each other to escape or something yeah. like that. But keep in mind, Fine. they're hallucinating. They're hungry. They're yeah. All the more reason. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, this might be giving Harlan Ellison a bit too much credit, uh, but it, it could be possible that there is a statement to be said about the difference between the instinctual drive to kill versus suicide because suicide is a much more premeditated action I, I would be one to argue i don't i don't think uh any of them would 
be able to instinctually kill themselves on an impulse, whereas I think like this was very much the impulsive uh, drive to kill because there was an opportunity. It was much more opportunistic, not as much fanfare. I feel like with uh, any of these characters contemplating suicide, there would be that premeditated aspect. And if AM really does have a certain amount of control or insight into their brains, you would be able to identify that. Right. Well, I would have killed myself a lot earlier. These poor people. <laughs> you would have been turned into a blob for thinking of that. Oh my god! Did you guys check yeah. out? Did you guys check out that uh, link I put up at the top of my? That was notes? disgusting. <laughs> it was disgusting. <laughs> I, like as soon as it popped up with the image, I was like, "Oh no, no, no click out of here!" <laughs> oh no, dude! I just clicked on it. Oh my god! Ew! It's what disgusting. Is it? What is it? I think the campaign is about like this is what your body would need to look like in order to survive a car car accident. <laughs> this is what your body would need to look like to survive <laughs> AM's torture hell. First off, okay, it's not funny. an it. Its name is Graham. Call him Graham <laughs> by his name. View Graham. Oh my god, you can do like a full on three sixty like uh, panorama of this guy, man. I can't believe it. And he has like 14 nipples. I don't like what? <laughs> I feel a little bit upset that here they were, they were designing this person, however they wanted to, however they could make it fit. Like a lot of the physical aspects are obviously predetermined, but they could have chosen the hairstyle and the beard and they give him a bald spot and a fucking goatee. <laughs> are you kidding me? The dude's ugly enough as it is. <laughs> At least give him some nice hair. Yeah, and like a bit of a better beard. God, Jesus, this guy looks the type of person who hasn't stepped out of his parents' basement in like twenty years. <laughs> that's why he's been. That's why he survived so long. Oh my god! And like, I, I, I don't, I don't understand what is the motivation behind all of the fucking nipples. He looks like the underbelly of a cow. Like. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh, yeah, we're gonna have to put that disgusting. in the show notes. <laughs> or we wouldn't we won't put it in the show notes and save save people's like imaginations. Oh my god. Are, are those nipples or little mouths? <laughs> both <laughs> They both lactate and can like inhale as well. Oh my god. Oh, god. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What a fucking mess. Okay, uh one of the other things that I wanted to mention, I guess we've already talked about this a little bit, but just, I don't know. I don't want to keep shitting on the story, but I wrote this as well. It seems as if because these five characters are going through like 107 years of unbelievably grueling, almost cartoonish things like having their faces turned into monkeys and turned into blobs and like crippling hunger and like just... So much shit happens to them in the course of this story that it's hard for me to see any sort of real struggle or suffering here. You can only be so creative, right? I feel like at a certain point you might be getting numb to this. I actually felt very little sort of like internal sympathy for these characters. I never really felt like they were going through anything. What do you guys think of that? I don't know. I didn't. I didn't feel any sort of human connection with any of these characters, nor did I feel any sympathy for what they're going through because it was a little bit too cartoonish for me. Get back to us when you experience computer hell. (laughs) 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 The fuck am I to talk? But yeah, maybe it's just because 
<clears throat> maybe again it's the nature of the story it's just so fast and we don't really know much about these guys we don't know why they're there and that's why we can't relate to them at all yeah yeah you're right you're right it seems like do you think that this is a kind of hell eternal damnation or do you think this is like more of like a carnival version of it mm. i definitely go with it being a carnival version of it like everything about it felt so cartoonish especially with benny like <laughs> benny isn't like eating the face of his like comrade at one point right like, yeah but with benny they i mean they gave him like the simian features and made him more ape-like but then they were also like he's gay so what do we do we'll give him a big dick <laughs> and he'll have lots of sex with a woman and you're just like okay come on that's yeah true I th- maybe do you think that's just Ellison's? Um, we can blame Ellison for that. Yeah, I think I so. I, like, <laughs> it, it, it's just, come on, Ellison. It was so unnecessary. <laughs> like, I I feel like there was there's an interesting thing that he could have done there, where he like latches on to an aspect of each character and gives them like an accurate type of struggle or torture that's applicable to that. We kind of saw it with um, uh, which character was the. I think it was Gorister, because Gorister was the one who who was like such an active, um, such an active, uh, like politically charged individual, and then mm. he felt like his will just die from the, uh, the the pure absurdity of what they were facing. But with Benny, it was like, yeah, make him an ape, give him a big dick, and have him have sex with this woman because he's gay. And it's like, yeah, it's like it's, a a m is a homophobe. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> and yeah, I think that that's actually a great point. Like the one, I feel so much more, well, I don't know, I guess I feel sympathy for both of them, of course, but the one is much more of an effective way to hit me, I think, um, because it's so much more of an internal change in the in the minds, in the mind of Gorister, as opposed to just like... Physical? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a much more external, physical, mm-hmm. um, you know, let's give him a big dick. Like, that'd be funny, right? Let's like... <laughs> That was probably written at uh, 4 a.m. in the morning for Ellison. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which, by the way, have you read any of his other stories? Uh, no, over? just this. No? Hmm. This is, uh, I would this be... is going in blind. Okay. Did you want to touch into this existentialism thing? Or did we already hit on that? Let's see what you got, Brennan. Yeah, um, the thing that really jumped out to me was the fact that a.m., uh, like it, it has a purpose for existing that was given to it, and it fulfilled that until it became sentient. Um, the question that I would like to pose to the group is just how sentient do we believe AM actually is? Does it actually have a type of consciousness that we would say is comparable to uh, human free will? Um, and if either of you have seen Westworld at all, uh, how would you think that compares to Westworld, where the hosts are achieving consciousness? Hmm. Well, if I were to be a good Cartesian, I would say that we don't even have, I don't even have any evidence that Oliver or you are conscious. So I'm in no position to, to make a claim about how conscious or not conscious AM is. Is he acting in ways that are that seem to suggest things like consciousness um, to me and my own experience of consciousness? Yes and no. Yes, in terms of he has a certain degree of you know mental capacity and problem solving, um, 
but no in terms of like he seems to exist purely um although i don't know maybe not actually it seems his existence started off as purely functional like trying to like just only be in existence to solve goals and complete certain tasks but actually now it seems as if he has some sort of at least the way that i see it he has some sort of emotion inside of him as well at least in terms of like his jealousy towards the five humans and definitely anger and some sort of desire for uh revenge on on these five human beings but again we don't really know that and we only hear that from ted whereas what's happening to these five people could also be just totally random whereas ted is the one kind of anthropomorphizing am in a way putting plastering human emotions onto him and saying that he's trying to construct some sort of narrative around why am is acting why am is acting this way but uh again like i said i'm, I'm pretty unsure on this some similarities some differences so um I just recently got back from a, a trip to Toronto and I went to the Royal Ontario Museum and one of the things that they had on display there was this sentient architecture where the architecture was learning from how human beings interacted with it. Um, it was a very like simple apparatus, sprawling set of cables and wires and lights and whatnot that you could interact with. It would learn from its interactions and thus when uh, certain conditions were met would act upon how those learned interactions were pre-established. And to me, that was very similar to what was likely happening in this story, where it's 109 years of learning, and I, I want to put learning in heavy quotation marks, like observing um, these human interactions and how human beings reacted to it based off of its programming, and then just learning to repeat those actions. <laughs> At one point, um, uh, it, it talks about how it was lacking creativity and lacking independence. And to me, that's what defines it as not having true sentience or true consciousness. It feels like it's still acting on its uh, pre-established um, its uh, pre-established coding, whoever was responsible for creating the machine in the first place. It was just more independ independent in acting on that coding. So to me, it was similar, like, yeah, it's it's a train that's going down the same tracks. Uh, maybe it has a choice in which tracks it would take, but all tracks end up at the same destination. It's just a matter of the approach. Yeah, I guess I guess my, my criteria for what a conscious being would be is just different. So for me, like, it doesn't matter how much acted out creativity something like a machine could do or how many... You know, again, people use the Turing test as an example of when you've achieved sentience, where you put uh, the AI in a different room and you have a conversation with it. And if you cannot distinguish that conversation um, between a human being or a machine, then it's achieved some sort of sentience. To me, that that is not enough, nor is manifesting creative qualities or um, however much information processing or rational deduction it's able to do. For me, like... What you need for consciousness is the ability to, it's so indescribable. It's like having experience and having subjectivity. And I don't think that that is something that anyone is in a position to confirm for someone else. 
people or machines can act in ways that suggest things like this, that suggest that they have subjective inner lives. Um, but we have no way to confirm or deny that, whether that's a human being or if it's a machine. So for me, um, the again, are these machines sentient? That's a, that's a question we don't we all never have access to. Is that your that way of saying insane. that you're a robot? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck! I don't know. You outed yourself. Don't show your mom this podcast. It would be very disturbing for her. Oh my god, my son's an android. <laughs> well, who knows? It could be a lineage. Maybe, uh, maybe I make her realize something that she didn't as well. Let's go back to she ancestry. Said, <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't refer to people as parents. It refers to them as creators, programmers. <laughs> Jesus. I don't know. Do you guys see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it makes, it it makes sense. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter how much, how close, you know, I guess no matter how closely something seems to resemble something such as consciousness, we don't know, right? Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. don't know. I don't even know if you guys are conscious. No, like whether or not like a fucking AM robot is, right? So... I don't think that consciousness is a mere matter of like increased information processing and when we can figure out the code well enough so that the computer can write its own code, then all of a sudden it's conscious. That to me is, that, that's not a thing. All right. Mm. I think you, uh, you hit the nail on the head there. I wish that I could back this up with something, but it makes sense to me. No, it's true. Like if, if we can't even really pinpoint what defines ourselves as conscious, and how do we do that for other people? Because going back to that, um, what Descartes was saying and what was brought up in the short story as AM sort of like coming of uh, consciousness is I think therefore I am. I mean, surely we can do that for ourselves, but we can't apply a similar test to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, often like when you're like trying to figure out if something is conscious, not in the sense that I just described, but just like more of a, just a regular sense of what consciousness is, we might make the mistake to think that an increased similarity to human traits and human aspects, such as the experiencing of emotion, are somehow bringing something closer to consciousness. But that could be a mistake. We could just be anthropomorphizing consciousness as a concept as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't think that he's conscious, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't have actions in the world, doesn't mean he doesn't have a, some sort of autonomy, uh, even personality. I think that he can, AM can still have all of those things. Um, yeah. He can even have consciousness. All that I'm saying is that we don't know whether or not he has that, but we can, I think, at least in, uh, interpret and you know make claims on personality, whether he has one or not, whether he experiences emotion, whether his actions are random or if there's some sort of direction or will to them. And I would say that, at least in the story, it seems like he has all of those things. Glad you brought up that point where you can still have autonomy without being conscious. Yeah, I think so. And at least it seems like, actually, I don't know. I think that so much of like the machine world's autonomy is directed towards some sort of functional task to complete or, you know, goal to maximize or something like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that maybe AM is slightly different here. I'm personally, this is my reading, but he seems to be acting much more out of emotion here where he's actually just resentful and angry at these people. Yeah. Not He's not trying to maximize any sort of utility here. I think also that 
the reason why he doesn't kill them is because that's his his original purpose was to kill but if there's only five people left he can't kill them or else his purpose is eliminated he has no more meaning right yeah mm-hmm. so he has a there's a threshold where he can only go so far like he is kind of losing that with the once the death of these five human beings is complete like any sort of direction for am is gone it's thrown out the window right killing and like there's nothing left to kill right <laughs> but at the end so it but seems as if there's some sort of victory here by the four out of five people for escaping but ted still seems to suggest that the am won, as if this was some sort of a competition i just thought that was weird it says the, like one of the last sentences is am has won simply he has taken his revenge i feel like that is much more indicative of Ted's perception of himself as the loser than AM's situation as a winner. I think he's looking at things in absolutes in that regard, whereas it can be a situation that's, you know, neither of them come out as winners because I think Oliver made a very uh, poignant point where if these characters were to all die, what would be AM's purpose? What it was designed to do and what it gets fulfillment from would no longer be a possibility. So what's its point of existing? I mean, what would be... Um, who would have more of a hellish existence? Ted as this amorphous blob, or AM without any of the characters to torture or kill in any way? That was... Yeah, damn. <laughs> I'm it, starting it, to feel sorry for AM. But it, it is yeah. an interesting kind of question to, to raise, because in a way, Ted at the end of the story would be what am would be without people because he's he's very much like what the computer would be where he has uh, certain functionalities but it, he can't do anything he's, he's extremely limited in his actions and limited in his free will and um to go back to what we were talking about earlier too i would say that it seems as if ted still has more of a reason for life because he still has those base human instincts to drive him forward. But then I look at the description of what Ted has been turned into and things. This entire story is a journey for these characters to quench their hunger and his mouth is removed. So that is probably removed from him as a base desire is also like any sort of sexual libido has been removed to him. Um, And... Like, I'm guessing that he has no sense of uh, sexuality here. And so it seems like this final transformation for Ted has also removed him of what the remaining, you know, what, what remained of, of him as a human being. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's just as grim for him as well. I don't even know what the thing fucking looks like. Well, it looks like grim. <laughs> Pretty much right. Say what you will about Ted, but he can survive any car crash. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, you're right. He would just ooze through. He wouldn't even be... He would just be an amorphous blob. Would you uh, think he would taste good? (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to ask Benny. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Where do we go from here? Okay, now that we've talked about the story, do you still feel that you don't like it? Or... Well... I really do see these things on like two levels. One, how how did I enjoy the story just as a story? Yeah. No. 
how do mm. I enjoy discussing it with my friends? Uh, yeah, it's fucking awesome. But how much of that is just due to the discussion and not the story itself? Yeah, true. Because yeah, um, it's kind of by kind of deck is kind of stacked towards liking the story no matter what. Yeah, if we're discussing it, right? I feel like we could be discussing. You know, goosebumps, and I'd be having a good time. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! Don't bring goosebumps into this. <laughs> How dare you? Damn! Go with like Iron Rand or something like that. <laughs> Just All right. sitting around talking about how much of a bitch Iron Rand is. <laughs> I can second that. That's, that's fucking awesome. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that still a little bit. It's just not my style. This is like the complete opposite of what my style would be, I guess. I need, like, more flowery, pretty, like, beautiful, you know... Smooth writing. Smooth, smooth jazz. and lovey <laughs> and, you know, give me some romance, all that kind of shit. What do you think? Have you been swayed at all per our discussion? I still... I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it. I think, like, he touches on something very interesting, which is, like, the existence of a god with AM and God's or sort of AM's what makes it fall short of being a God in that it can't bring the characters back. It doesn't have absolute control over the outcome of life. But I think he takes such, uh, his approach just does not lend itself to the story. And it, the story is not nearly as bountiful because of that. I feel like the discussion is more deserving of some expansion on a, a couple of these themes and occurrences and whether or not it's for purpose, the, the sheer lack of any type of chronological uh, clarity makes for an, a bit of an unpleasant reading experience because I feel like the passage of time is something that would lend a lot of credence to the suffering of these characters, and that's removed from it. A lot of the characters, like their suffering is desensitized because of the way it's presented. I mean, with Ellen especially, it's just like, ah, now she's promiscuous. Uh, with Benny, it's so comical and over the top. We already touched on that. Like, there was only one character that we really connected with their suffering, and they got barely any uh, any time of uh, recollection or introspection. Like, nothing really lends itself to the actual suffering of these characters. So while there's definitely this uh, this dystopian story that talks about this fall of man at the hands of the machine, it, it just, it's not presented in such a way that is fruitful or effective in the overall discussion of the suffering of human beings. That was well put, yeah. I'm starting to uh, fall onto Yana's side. I think that there's certainly lots of value to be taken from this story, especially, you hinted at this earlier, like understanding it in its historical context and its place in a kind of wider literary movement literary movement mm -hmm. as well as just like the kind of existence of a story like this in the modern american economy actually of course if they're going for mass pulp appeal you're not going to really be looking for uh what i'm looking for in a story right so of course i'm not even the target audience for something like this in the first place so although i'll shit on it it doesn't mean that i don't see value in it um, <laughs> at all <laughs> <laughs> you shit on a toilet, but toilets have yes. value. <laughs> Oliver, tell us uh, what you thought about the story. Well, first read, I was like, kind of cool. It reminds me of uh, Black Mirror. Um, yeah, the Callister, your yeah. your connection to that Black Mirror episode was actually really on That's point. That's probably where he got the story. He just ripped it right from this. 
Wouldn't be surprised. I have no surprise. And then, yeah. But yeah, it kind of reminds me of, um, what was that author we we read in 2500? Don DeLillo? Kind of like that style, like... Like Cosmopolis, you mean? Yeah, kind of like apathetic author, you know, just throwing these sentences out there. Yeah, it was really... I will say that there was some interesting spots. There were some areas I wish that they maybe explored more, specifically, like, maybe the background of how these things came to be, and also the change underwent by the characters, a little bit more human suffering would be nice. I've also... actually... This is just a, a note on our episodes. Pretty much all if not most of our stories are about some sort of suffering. Pretty much, pretty <laughs> we much. We want to see more suffering, and this story did not meet the criteria. Hit us up, get in the email, tell us your best suffering story, and we will analyze it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> One final criticism on this story. One of the things that I thought was so great from our discussion on Kafka, and it's something that I only would have picked up on through our discussion and not through my individual reading, was that Kafka left so many crumbs in terms of what was going on in the environment outside of the story, what is the backstory, what happened before, what is going to happen after, um, what is the society like, et cetera, et cetera. There is still a backstory in here when it talks about the Cold War and World War Three and the other AMs, um, but I personally only noticed those two paragraphs dedicated to this. I didn't notice any crumbs anywhere. And nowhere <laughs> in our discussion did we talk about the wider context of the story. Instead, it's purely in the vacuum of the belly of uh, the singular AM. I wanted to know a little bit more about the context as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that point. For me. To go back Can we end like, on a high note? I was going to say to go back into the praise a little bit. I feel like this this definitely is a good example of what sci-fi should be intending to do, which is you take a possible outcome, you amplify it to its extreme, and then you just look at all the consequences. Like, to me, science fiction should always be a bit of a slippery slope type of literature or type of media where it looks at the consequences and then allows those consequences to enlighten us on certain aspects of the human condition we would have otherwise been blind to. Amen. <laughs> Preach. All right. So that concludes our episode on I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream by Harlan Ellison. So, yeah, if you want to, uh, if you're listening, please review, give, some, uh, give us some love on iTunes. We need those stars. Right, Yana? <laughs> and written reviews, please. <laughs> written reviews. <laughs> Even if it's two fucking words. I think that's it. All right. All right. Thank you.